Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have somebody that I am so excited to have on for today's show because we are going to talk about immigration. So I have Dr. Brian Kaplan on with us. Brian Kaplan is professor of economics at George Mason University. He is the author of The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and most recently, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. Brian, thanks for being with us. Fantastic to be here. So, you know, one of the themes for the Libertarian Christian Institute this year is human flourishing. And gosh, it was probably like somewhere between five and 10 years ago, I came across some pro-immigration material uh, I think it was by Lant Pritchett, Let Their People Come. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the the economics of immigration is almost a slam dunk in terms of global prosperity. And I've been, you know, kind of convinced pretty, pretty solidly over the past several years that this is a good sort of policy for the United States to embrace. And of course, you, you would agree uh, because you're writing a book on it. But I often have trouble convincing certain people of this, you know, in, you know, people, of course, you know, there's some people are set in their ways. Some people, you know, they might actually be a little smarter than me and, and I have to kind of you know, double check my ways of arguing with them. So I'm going to bring up some of their questions so that you can help me be a better advocate for open borders uh, later in our talk here. But, you know, I just read out loud your uh, the different topics that you've written on. You know, you've written about uh, why you should have more children. You've written on democracy. Why a book on open borders? So actually, this is something where I've been blogging about it for about 15 years um, and it's a topic where there's so much great research that almost nobody reads because it's trapped in obscure journals, and yet it's so relevant. In particular, the punchline of much of the research is that this is the greatest deregulatory opportunity on Earth. If you go and just look at the cost of all the other regulations that exist on Earth put together and compare them to the cost of these immigration regulations – it really looks like the cost of the immigration regulations outweighs all of the other ones put together. And you know, essentially because you are trapping so much human talent in unproductive places when for the price of a bus ticket, it could go to a place where it could accomplish so much more. So, you know, you say in the book that this is like that immigration restrictions are like a problem in search of a solution. It seems that there are a lot of people that think that that's just the easy way to keep poverty from coming to the United States, to grow the welfare state, et cetera. Oh, right. So, I mean, I would just say that people, when they think about immigration restrictions, they usually just don't think in terms of the basic economics of trade. So, again, the whole idea of trade is that you're moving something from a place where it isn't worth very much to a place where it's worth more. And for most goods, it doesn't take that much effort to see what's going on. So, like, when in the 19th century, people would actually sail down to Antarctica, fill a ship with ice, and then sail it up to the equator before it melted – And you can see you're taking this ice, which is worthless in Antarctica, and you're bringing it to the equator where it's really valuable. And that's what trade is all about, is moving things from places where they are not very worthwhile to places where they are. And that's what immigration is all about. It's about taking human labor in places where it accomplishes very little and moving it to places where it accomplishes a lot. 
And this doesn't just enrich the immigrant, it enriches the world because people produce so much more stuff in rich countries than they do in poor countries. And again, it's not just that the people in rich countries are more skilled, although they are, because you can see the day that an immigrant arrives, he can produce a lot more value than back in his home country. The day a Haitian moves from Haiti to Florida, he can easily produce 20 or 30 times as much value as he was doing back at home because he's in a so much more productive environment. So this is such an important moral argument to make. I mean, you've made that clear in other interviews that I've heard you on. So you actually decided to not write this in, you know, typical book fashion. This is actually a graphic nonfiction. So could you mm-hmm. do you explain what some of the reasoning behind that was? Uh, yeah. So it got started when I just read some high-quality nonfiction graphic novels, especially Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe. And I saw that By combining words and pictures, you can still be very accurate, very informative, but you can communicate a lot more information in a much shorter amount of time, again, because a picture is worth a thousand words. And you also probably can make it a lot more memorable because the pictures really help people to retain the information that you're trying to give them. So that was a lot of the ideas. There's just a lot of information about immigration. If you just write it in book form, it's going to be kind of boring for a lot of people. Not that many people will wind up reading it. It's too slow a way of supplying information to people, and they're probably not going to remember it that well. And I got the idea, why don't I try a different way of communicating and see whether I can do a better job? And then on top of it, I also had some extra motivation because... A lot of my arguments are thought experiments, and those just work better when you can see them instead of just hear them, right? And then, honestly, I just wanted to try something different, learn new skills, try being a different kind of creator or create a different kind of product. And and I really like the genre, so all that came together for me. So you didn't actually do the illustration. Zach Wiener-Smith did the illustration, um, and, you know, he's the author of Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, Right. That the oh yeah yep so it's, one and only Zach Wienersmith yeah it's uh it's pretty it's pretty amazing I've actually listened to an audiobook that he and his wife did uh before and like they're they're just a great yeah that's an awesome book um they're they're really great and you know what's interesting I you know I pre-ordered your book like the day you announced it on Facebook or whatever and I don't think I realized it was going to be a graphic novel I don't know if I wouldn't pay attention to <laughs> or whatever and I was like oh. Well, I hope it's as thorough as I, you know, as I would want a book from Brian Kaplan to to be. And I, much to my delight, it really is like a good picture is worth more than a thousand words because uh, it is memorable. And I've been able to very quickly go back to the book and be like, ah, there's there's that chart, there's that statistic. Um, so I'm really thankful that you did it in this way. It's also not expensive. It's like under $15 on any given day on Amazon. So like it's go out and buy it, people. And if you want to get more depth, I've got 40 pages of endnotes and references. So I really wanted to make it clear to anyone that wants to go the extra mile that the research is all there. And I've thought this through very carefully. Uh, At the same time, I wanted it to be accessible to a broader audience. And so this is how I decided to roll with it. So the the phrase itself, open borders, can be a little bit provocative. And, you know, whenever people want to know my political opinions about things and I'm ready to be provocative, I'll say that I'm pretty much in favor of open borders and they'll get wide-eyed at me and say, well, what on earth do you mean? So there's a lot of things that people assume open borders means. Um, I, I think it might be a good place to start with, like, what exactly do you mean by open borders? Right. So it's a slogan. And like all slogans, it oversimplifies a bit. 
But it comes down to this. Uh, you know, World of Open Borders is one where anyone can take a job anywhere. So people can live and work any place where there's someone willing to hire them, someone willing to rent them a place to stay. And that's the gist of it. Now, you know, going through the book, it was like 99% open borders, still open borders. Sure, why not? It's again, it's a slogan. So there's nothing magic about it being absolutely pure. But the idea of this is being a very strong default and you know, give me a reason why not to do it. That's really what structures, the, that's really the structure of the book. So you, do, you don't really mean no borders at all, though. Right. You know, so of course, if, you know, to say that a border is open doesn't mean that a border doesn't exist. So, you know, of course, the simplest kind of an open border is just one between U.S. states where you can, it's on a map, but you can drive back and forth and there's no checkpoint or anything like that. Uh, so would it still be an open border if there was a cursory passport check? Again, so since it's not a matter of has to be 100 percent or else it's or else it doesn't count, then sure. So, again, you know, if you think about it this way, you know, like, you know, if someone were to say, like, what is the simplest way of explaining exactly what you favor? I'd say this, you know, unless a person belongs in jail, they can live and work anywhere they want. So obviously, if you're a convicted murderer, then you're stuck in jail and you can't go. You can't go to any country you want. You can't even leave the prison. But I would say, you know, unless someone actually belongs in jail, and you know, even that phrasing, I deliberately chose it because there's plenty of people right now who are in jail who don't belong there, right? So you've got a million Uyghurs in China in slave labor camps, and under Chinese law, they're criminals in some sense. But I would still say yes, but they don't belong in jail, so they should be able to come, and we should be happy to take them. So basically, people who <laughs> are nonviolent acting in ways that natives would be acting, otherwise yeah. they'd, they'd also be put in prison. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've often been in conversation with people who'd be like, well, the problem isn't immigrants. You know, I'm not anti-immigrant. What, what the problem is, is illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I often say to people, well, wait a second, if we have open borders they wouldn't be illegal anymore. Mm -hmm. Like it'd be, you know, it's like you can't get a speeding ticket if there's no speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a extremely logical argument I've made many times and convinced exactly zero people with it. <laughs> uh, because when people complain about illegal immigration in the back of their minds is the view that the immigration that's, that is illegal should be illegal. Uh, okay. So you're not going, you know, so you're not going to play Vulcan mind tricks on them and say, <laughs> ah, well, but yes, um, you know, well, a way that I like to describe open borders is to say that it's a, you know, I'm against illegal immigration too. I'm against its illegality, right? So I think that the immigration that's currently illegal should be legal. So you say in your book that we should focus on what is good for people, not necessarily what is good for countries. I think mm -hmm. there might be plenty of sort of patriotic libertarians who may take a little issue with that statement. Could you explain that a bit? Right. So the simplest way of thinking about it is this. It sounds really good when someone says we should try to have the highest per capita GDP in our country, for example, right? Uh, and that sounds good until you come up with a few thought experiments and say, okay, well, suppose that um, all the janitors in the country die during the night, which then raises our per capita GDP. Was that a good thing? And people say, no, no, of course not. I don't want janitors to die. <laughs> like, well, why not? I mean, like they're dragging down our per capita GDP. And if you push people on it, it's okay, well, the, the fact that they're janitors, it's actually, they're, 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 they're useful citizens, they're contributing. When I say that I don't want, the, uh, that I want the per capita to be as high as possible, I'm picturing that we keep the people the same and then we make the people better off. 
And I said, okay, well, that's great, but then this isn't a useful way to think about immigration. Because again, suppose that you let in a janitor from Haiti. He's just brought down our per capita GDP, but he's better off. He provides useful services to American customers, so they're better off. So why would that not be a good thing? So again, when I think about focusing on the policies that are good for people rather than countries, what I'm saying is that you should be look, you know, like if you're looking at the individual people and you're saying all of them are better off than the fact that the demographics make it make it create the illusion that there's a problem, you should just keep that in mind. So in other words, you know, so I actually have a picture in the book saying, you know, like like if there's an NBA team and you let some toddlers onto the court, that doesn't shrink the NBA players, but it does reduce average height on the court. Right. And and yeah, yeah. And I even have a picture showing the NBA players picking up the toddlers and letting them dunk. And, you know, I think that gives you a good idea of what it means for everyone's happier. And yet the average has gone down and in, in a way where someone might get nervous if they didn't understand the situation, that the reason why height is falling is not that the player, any individual player is shrinking, but rather that you are changing the people that are on the court. And that mental picture right there is a reason why this was a graphic nonfiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't just draw yeah. illustrations in a regular book of basketball players holding up toddlers. What is the arithmetic fallacy? Yeah. So arithmetic fallacy is really just what I was saying, you know, where you judge the outcome of something by the average when the denominator, the people that you're dividing over is changing. Right. So, you know, this is going back to that basketball court. So you've got a bunch of NBA players, average height, seven foot six, Mm -hmm. and then I walk onto the court. All right. So what just happened to average height on the court? It just fell. Mm. But did that hurt anybody? Right. It did not. Right. So when the people that you're talking about are are stay the same, then it makes sense to think about, you know, use the average as a measure of social well-being. But when you can vary the nature of the people, then it no longer makes sense. Before you were writing this book, one of the one of the phrases that I've I heard you say, I think it was with your conversation with Russ Roberts, which I think was back in like 2008, uh-huh. um, where the the whole idea of a keyhole solution, which I mm-hmm. you know it's funny, I didn't know that term until I read this book, but mm-hmm. you kept saying this phrase, the cheaper and more humane way, is mm-hmm. that like right now it's inhumane to keep poor people from crossing over the border. And so instead of just you know, it's sort of like yeah, a compromise solution. You know, we keep children in a prison. Right. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, the cheaper and more humane way is some sort of like compromise or a keyhole solution, which is more specifically a way in which you can kind of like get something better than what we have. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I struggle with on keyhole solutions is that, well, yeah, I agree with that solution. Like, um, you know, maybe we should, you know, have immigrants pay a tax to you know, pay higher taxes for the first five years so that, you know, it can offset the fact that, you know, natives don't like it that they're there or whatever it is, whatever the economic, you know, benefit needs to be for natives. But like, if Republicans agreed to something like that, that particular keyhole solution would never be met with like, oh, yeah, the Demo- with the Democrats saying, well, yeah, let's do that. So like, to some extent, I wonder what how the keyhole solutions are even politically feasible. It might be helpful for our listeners for you to give some of the examples of keyhole solutions. But some of them don't seem politically feasible, even though I would much prefer that. Right. So in terms of political feasibility, just to start, there are a lot of keyhole solutions that we already use. So for example, tourists right now are not entitled to the same benefits as people who are permanent U.S. residents. So if there is a tourist who gets in the U.S. and then they need some non-emergency surgery, the U.S. government doesn't pay for it. 
right? So that's a pretty simple one. Uh, another one is right now there is a five-year eligibility wait for immigrants, uh, for you know, for, for for lawful immigrants to collect federal benefits, right? Sometimes state governments make up the difference, but the, the U.S. government does have a five-year waiting period already. And then, of course, there's things like just because you've got a legal job here doesn't mean you can vote right away. There's a whole process for getting citizenship. So we already have a bunch of these rules on the books. So when people say it's just a pipe dream, I say it can't be a pipe dream because they exist. And then there's the question of, given that they exist, you can't tell me it's impossible to raise the waiting period to six years, right? This just can't, it yeah. can't be that hard. If we can do five, come on, we can do six. Yeah. And now when people say, well, there's just no way the Democrats would agree with that. I mean, one thing I would say is, of course, just what would it be three years well now yeah three years ago the republicans had the presidency the house and the senate and yet they didn't try any of this stuff so you know like every now and then of course one party actually has united government and then they could go and push it through and then it becomes very hard in the u.s system to undo it once it happens but i mean really what i tell people is if you took all the energy that you put in just trying to get immigration down and switched it over to trying to make immigration better, I think you could do something. Mm. So if you took, imagine you took all of Republican anti-immigration energy and you pointed it directly at welfare eligibility, I think you could do something there. Mm. When people say it's just impossible, I just say, no, it's totally possible. It's just you are an American, an American, (laughs) someone who hears an idea and just says it can't be done. Nothing can be done except what we're already doing. Right. And look, Things have happened already, so don't tell me it can't be done. <laughs> so, so <laughs> you know, I guess, like, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little worried that I'm quoting Mao Zedong here, but you know, like there are no, there are there are no but no bad ideas, just bad ways of implementing the idea. Mm, okay. Then, yeah. So I'm a little worried. I'm quoting a terrible person there, but maybe it's Buddha. I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little <laughs> actually a little hazy on that right now. We but, can just assume that somebody somebody who's yeah. not uh, of ill repute has also yeah. agreed with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, you know, so like, you know, don't say it can't. You know, you know. So actually, you know, like in the book, I have a quote which is not really from Confucius, although it's attributed to him, where it just says, you know, uh, you know, "People who say it cannot be done should not interfere with those who are doing it." So, would you agree with the sentiment that being anti-immigrant is kind of being un-American? Right. Well, I mean, as a just as a slogan, I like it a lot. As a descriptive claim, then it's like, well, it's kind of complicated. A lot of Americans have been anti-immigrants, and mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. hasn't had open borders now for ninety-nine, you know, anything close to it for ninety-nine years. But yeah, I, I like the slogan. So just to say, you know, if you were to say without immigration, America would be nothing like what it is, that's totally true. Mm-hmm. And also just to say, almost everyone who complains about immigrants is, is themselves a, a descendant of immigrants. Very true. You know, I mean, I have this old post on uh, what I call, you know, retroactive immigration restriction, where if we were just go back and, and do what people today say they want 100 years ago or, or 150 years ago, would people think the results have, would people have said the results would be good? And I think almost no one would. Hmm. Yeah. So one of the questions that I often get is like, well, show me a successful country with open borders. It just does, it just doesn't exist. And, you know, any anyone who's tried it, who is the, you know, they see it, the cultural disintegration, et cetera, et cetera. Did America have open borders at one point? I mean, is there a successful example? Yeah, well, so America had virtually had open borders for hundreds of years. There were a few different restrictions, but they were very small relative to the amount of immigration that was legal. 
So, I mean, I would say that before the Chinese Exclusion Act, the U.S. was probably at like 99.9% open. And then, you know, Chinese Exclusion Act probably brought the U.S. down to, say, you know, 95. And then Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan brought us down, you know, like 92, say. And then it was the Immigration Act of 1921 that made a huge difference and that 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 reduced the opening of I say that moved us from what was it like 90 I say 92 or 93 percent open down to maybe 10 percent open with one act and then there's uh you know for the follow-up act 1924 which then brings us to something even more restricted than we had today so I'd say that brought us to say like 90 you know like one percent open hmm. and then I'd say now we're more like two okay so it's it's pretty bad. Like I guess I I, yeah. I maybe I don't even realize the actual math about it or you know, what what are immigrants, you know, quotas and all of that compared to what it could be. And you're you're saying it's pretty dire as like two percent. Yeah. So I mean, like, like I think the, you know, the best way of thinking about it is a good measure of how closed your you know, your immigration is is if you look at the ratio of immigrants who come to the ratio that would come if they could do it for the price of a bus ticket or steerage passage on a ship. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? And, and I, and I, so again, it's a little bit complicated. So you have to bring in the time element. Obviously, if we deregulated today, you wouldn't have a billion people tomorrow. It's the, like the logistics wouldn't work, but still just to think, you know, so if we had had this, you know, you know, if we had had open borders for the last 50 years, how many people would have come, how many people did come and then divide the second thing by the first thing. And that gives you a measure of how restricted mm-hmm. we really are. Yeah. And I think that there would have been hundreds of millions of additional people would be here if the U.S. had had open borders for the last 50 years. So many, many libertarians would would want to believe in open borders because, you know, out of principle, they believe in the free movement of people, that government shouldn't restrict people from seeking freedom and seeking to better themselves, et cetera. Uh, but because America is not a f- completely free country, we have to have some sort of <laughs> restrictions. That's what they would say. And and the number one is, of course, the uh, you can't have open borders in a welfare state. And much to my delight, you and Milton Friedman have this uh, hypothetical argument in your book. So why is Milton Friedman wrong? Right. Uh, so Milton Friedman is wrong because he isn't actually looking at the numbers. So logically speaking, it could be that the welfare state is so big that immigration immigrants would break the bank and kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, right? And okay. I, I and I'm not absolutist enough to say that I don't care, right? Nor I, mean, I would say no sensible person would say they don't care about that scenario, right? But it's one where you have to do a lot more than just wave your hands and speculate. You really need to do the math. Now there is a reason why Friedman's argument makes sense, which is that. We have a fairly progressive tax system, which means that the richer that you are, the higher share of tax that you pay. And on the other hand, if you're poor, then there's a whole lot of benefits that you get from the government. So you put that together and you say, well, most people on earth are less skilled than Americans. So when they come here, they're going to generally be low earners, paying few taxes, and you end uh, eligible for a lot of benefits. right? So that by itself, that part of the argument is fine. It's just that you need to factor in a bunch of other arithmetic. So starting with the U.S. welfare state, while it does have money for the poor, it actually focuses on the old. And while globally the immigrants that we're keeping out tend to be uh, you know, tend to be low skilled, they also tend to be young. And so you say, all right, well, it's complicated then because 
on the one hand, they're going to be more eligible for the poverty programs, but less eligible for the old age programs, right? And if you then say, well, eventually they'll be eligible for those old age programs, then we come back to basic accounting, which is that a debt that you owe someone that is due in 50 years is a way cheaper debt than one that you have to pay them right now, vastly cheaper, right? So then you've got to do that math. And then furthermore, another very important part of the math is that when immigrants come, uh, generally they've already had their education paid for by their home country. So while U.S. taxpayers are paying for their kids' education, they're not paying for the parents' education, that saves you a pile of money. And then finally, there's a lot of government where the cost doesn't depend very much on population. Economists call this non call these non-rival goods. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we had a big baby boom, no sensible person would say we need to go and get more nuclear weapons to protect the babies. You can defend those babies just as well with the arsenal we've already got. And there's a lot of government services that are like that where the cost doesn't depend much on population. And so uh, for goods like that, letting in more immigrants is a lot like letting in people uh, at the matinee the movie theater at a discounted price. Right? When movie theaters have a low matinee price, that isn't charity. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a way of making money. <laughs> You're like, how can you make money when they're paying so much less than the typical person in the theater? And it's like, well, because the theater's already built, the cost of letting them in is is, very, is uh, even lower than the, than the amount they're paying. So it's actually a good deal yeah. for the movie theater. And the same goes for immigration to the extent that government is providing these non-rival goods. So anyway, this is all super complicated and frankly, pretty boring for almost everybody. But uh, luckily for the reader, I suffer for the reader's edification. (laughs) And I really did read the whole literature that I could find estimating, well, the net fiscal effect of immigration when you're trying to figure out the total amount of taxes they're going to pay, adjusted by, by the amount when they're going to pay them, minus the cost of all the services they're going to use, adjusted for the when that's going to come due. And then obviously you also want to figure in their kids because their kids are going to go to school, but eventually the kids pay taxes. And then I tried to find not the people that agree with me, which is totally cheesy, but rather try to find the most prestigious, careful work on this, which uh, was done by the National Academy of Sciences. And when you come down to that, Friedman's wrong. Freeman's wrong. So the immigrants that are getting right now are a net fiscal positive. And when you break it down by different groups, really the only negative group that we see are the low-skilled elderly. Okay. The low-skilled elderly are a fiscal burden on uh, on natives. And then it comes down to, all right, so either let in, uh, you know, let in everybody except the low-skilled elderly. Or again, if you are a libertarian at minimum, you should say, well, I mean, it's not gonna. It's not gonna be a disaster, right? That's just one group. We could still let them in, right? So, I mean, it's one thing to say that it's okay to bend libertarian principles when there's going to be really bad effects. But on the other hand, if it's just one minor problem offset against a lot of benefits, then I would say stick to principle. In the same way that I would say, don't forbid people in welfare from having children, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, say you know, like you know, like it'd be one thing if the whole system was going to come collapsing unless we did that. But obviously, we don't tell people in welfare they can't have children, and the system isn't isn't anywhere near collapsing. And you know, I would, you know, if there were libertarians said no, we should like you know, we should go and put people in jail and welfare for having kids. I would say, look, you know, I can understand what you're saying if we were on the brink of ruin, but we're not on the brink of ruin. This is not this is nowhere near the right. time to to, uh, to employ such horrible and draconian policies against people. You know, like when we could still make the argument of 
that we let's restrict the benefits rather than restricting human reproduction. Yeah. Well, and I I like that you inserted that because there there are so many arguments against open borders that would be the same type of arguments against you know you know unlimited reproductive rights. Yeah, of, of course. So yeah, I'm glad you you inserted yeah. that into that conversation that you had with uh with good old Milton Friedman. Um. So. What do you think of the argument that many libertarians will make about like, you know, I have a right to, you know, exclude people from my property as as a libertarian or just as a property rights owner? Like the whole mm-hmm. ethics of property rights is that I have the right to keep you, Brian, from coming to Pennsylvania and coming on my property if I wanted you to not come on my property. And so the analogy then just gets scaled to, well, states and, you know, governments have the right to prohibit people from coming onto their property. And therefore those laws are legitimate and people who break them should be either deported or thrown into prison. Like, does the argument scale or do you think that right. there's some sort of mismatch there? Yeah. So psychologically, I it's clear that this argument has great appeal. So just as an individual property owner has the right to do whatever he wants on his own property, so too countries have the rights to do whatever they want to do in their own countries. All right. Logically, however, these two views are directly contradictory because if the country can do whatever it wants in the country, then you can't do whatever you want on your property, obviously. Right? So <laughs> if the country can decide what religion people practice, then guess who can't? You. Mm, right. Right. If the country can decide whether people who's allowed to have children, then guess who can't? You. The country can decide what words are acceptable. Then guess who can't? You. Yeah. Right. Similarly, if the country can decide who gets to be in, who gets to visit the U.S. or who gets to work here, then we are taking that right away from property owners. We're taking that right away from employers. Right. And so, logically, these ideas are actually directly contradictory. Right. In fact, I say, you know, like in the book, I say the idea that countries can do whatever they want with their country is socialism. Right. Literally, it is socialism. Yeah. Right. This idea of this is our country, and if these fat cats and business people and rich people don't like it, tough luck for them. We can, you know, the, the, they they aren't the masters of their stuff. We are. We the people rule this country. We the people own all the land, all the businesses, right? So this is an argument where I understand the psychological appeal, but logically, they you know this is exactly the opposite of a libertarian point of view. And again, I, I've told people, look, so if you th- you think that it's okay for the people you use to decide whether or not you are allowed to hire an immigrant, right? Right. Right. Okay. Well, then why are, are the people of the United States not within their rights to decide whether or not you can trade with other countries? Yeah. Right? And, you know, I, it's the same logic saying you're not allowed to open up a store inside of my house without my permission, right? Correct. All right. So why should you be able to open up a store inside of America without America's permission? Right. So – I have actually called this a narco-totalitarianism before. <laughs> it <laughs> starts with what sounds like anarchism and ends by uh, by justifying true totalitarianism, where the government of the country is allowed to do anything that it wants. Because, like, because like, you're here, so you've got us. You know, like, like you've consented. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can I can totally see that that's logic. I, I never even thought of it as logically contradictory, but I'm glad that you kind of pointed that specifically out. I just sort of pointed out the yeah. fallacies. Yeah, I mean, like, 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 what, what is libertarian philosophy except saying that it's not the, the country that should decide what happens on my property? It's me. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about the whole like collective decision-making or whatever, however we want to do it. And, you know, as, as a, you like thought experiments. So let's, let's mm-hmm. take a non-United States country. I'll pick Iceland. 
I, I was going to say randomly, but anybody who knows me knows that, that wasn't random. Um, <laughs> so they're a pretty, uh, pretty progressive society, pretty progressive government. Uh, most people are pretty open to a, a lot of you know things that progressives in our country would would uh, espouse and you know push for. I think they had like a woman prime minister in like the seventies, mm-hmm. uh, and so. They are also relatively homogeneous in terms of race and ethnicity and language. And if they decided as a country, and again, they're only like 300,000 people. Mm-hmm. If they decided as a country, you know what? We don't want people from Africa or we don't want Muslims coming or whatever, because if we just simply adopted something called open borders, then it would ruin and change the culture that we have. And, and maybe I shouldn't use the word ruin. Maybe they would just say that we don't want to change the culture that we have. We're not going to judge the other culture per se, but we just don't want, we want our culture to remain the way it is because that's just our decision. How would you advise somebody who's who's making that argument with the case that open borders is better for them? Right. So I would begin by just saying that how far are you willing to push this right to prevent your culture from changing? Right. So does this mean that if, for example, native-born Icelanders want to convert to Islam, that they can't do that? Hmm. Does it mean that if native-born Icelanders want to have a different family structure than existed in previous decades, they can't do that? So, I mean, like whenever people talk about the right to preserve your culture, I always think about my parents who are both in their 80s. And so, you know, they were born in the 1930s. And when they look at American culture today, do you think they feel comfortable? (laughs) (laughs) Like this is just another planet for them. Why? Because the culture changed, right? And did they have a right to stop that? I say, well, they had a right to argue and to present their views and to say things were better, were better in the past and we should have stayed the way, things sort of stayed the way they were, but that's it. Right. I don't think they they don't have any further right to go and make me keep going to the same church that I was raised in or to raise my kids in the same way that they thought or to have the same views they did. And why? Because to do that, they would have to trample my rights. Hmm. Right. So I have a slogan, which is that culture is other people. Culture is other people. So if all you want to do is keep living your way, then you're free to do that. But in order to keep your culture intact, you've got to control other people. Right. So, you know, I I would say that. You know, a country that very consistently practices this idea of cultural preservation is Saudi Arabia, right, which is a totalitarian state where the government has decided the way that people are going to live, what the beliefs they're going to have. And if you don't like that, you will be jailed or flogged or executed. Now, I'm not attributing any of this to people who want to preserve Icelandic culture. Rather, I'm saying that's the consistent sure. position. And what they have is a much watered down version. And then there's the question of, do, do they have a right to do that, right? And I say no. In particular, I say, you know, that you are trampling the rights of all the Icelanders who would like to go and hire people from Africa or people from Muslim countries, all the people that would like to go and rent property to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, we should all, we should focus on their rights, uh, the rights of the property owners, not the general view of people in the country that they don't want something to happen. Again, that's in my mind, is classic case of the tyranny of the majority. Most people don't want this religion to be practiced here, so it shouldn't be able to be practiced here. Most people don't want there to be gay marriage, so there shouldn't be gay marriage. right? I say, look, we should focus on the rights of the individuals that want to do it rather than the rights of the collective to say, tell individuals what they want to do. Now, if you, want to, if you wanted me to argue, yeah, but how is this actually better? How is this actually better? Yeah, I, like, I would say that the improvement comes from allowing a, you know, allowing cultural competition. You know, like you know, if the Icelandic way is really better, then you just need to sell people on that, and you can do it. 
And I do say that Western culture is winning all over the world. So Steven Pinker has some nice graphs on this. So you know, people go to, say, the Middle East and say it's not westernized, but they're comparing the westernization of the Middle East to, say, Iceland today, mm-hmm. when they should be saying, well, what was the Middle East like 50 years ago? And then you'll see, wow, there's been enormous westernization, right? So, you know, like the, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini had this great word that he liked to use. He called it West toxification, right? So there's all of this poison, this cultural poison coming in from the West trying to ruin Iran. And I'm here, the Ayatollah said, to stop that, right? And, and you know, he was a great proponent of preventing cultural change. But the key thing to notice is that without draconian government policies, the change is happening and it's in the direction that I consider for the better generally of westernization, move towards human rights and tolerance and progress. Yeah. Hey, everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City. And the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So, of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI25, all lowercase, in order to get 25% off the ticket price. So again, that's libertarianchristians.com slash debate. Use promo code LCI25, all lowercase. Hope to see you there. So... You know, the, the the cultural difference, as you mentioned, your parents, you know, looking at America today and being like, wow, this is just a different world, you know, a different land that we grew up in and and so forth. So, I, you know, I think we can kind of set aside that and say, okay, well, yeah, that kind of change is one thing. But like, what about the culture of freedom or just libertarians who are concerned that there will be more, like we're already fighting to make arguments for liberty. My goodness, these immigrants, they come from terrible countries that will want to vote only for Democrats. And, you know, I've been accused of naive idealism because Mm -hmm. we are metaphorically watering the tree that will hang ourselves electorally. Because, you know, California and Florida and maybe Texas are going to tilt the scales so much in the favor of anti-liberty. We just shouldn't do this. Like theory, yes, it sounds great, Brian, but, you know, we're going to hang ourselves if we just, you know, stay naive and, you know, whatever. Right. So I say the argument is logically possible. It's just a question of looking at the data and seeing what's really going on. Right. And in particular, you know, if it were true that right now American America was a libertarian paradise and then immigrants are coming from lands of democratic Stalinism, then I can have a lot easier to understand the argument. Hmm. But when you already see how unlibertarian America is, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go and find an immigrant and say, see, he's not a libertarian. Right? You need to show that there is a serious gap before it makes sense to start predicting any kind of doom or gloom. Uh, now, I noticed that you made, you know, made this point of you know, Democrats will win. So you know, my view as a libertarian is that on balance, it's not, at least not clear that Democrats are worse than Republicans. So they're worse in some ways, better in some other ways. On net, I would just say that it's too close to call. Right. And so, you know, the fact that immigrants or, you know, you know are, are heavily democratic is not the kind of thing that would concern me by itself. What concerns me is their issue views. Right. Right. So that's what I focus on in the book is looking at the issue views. And there we can say is that immigrants seem to be a little bit less libertarian than natives, but it's a pretty small difference. And immigrants are better on one important question, which is immigration itself. Right. So immigrants are less are less in favor of government restriction on immigration. So I think you should definitely give them that. 
right? But they're definitely not open borders in there. I mean, it was like 27% yes. versus 11%. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it, you know, even there, it's not like immigrants are like me, right? Immigrants rather are just less opposed to immigration than natives are. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, it is true. And right, you know, so that nowadays immigrants are very heavily democratic. But I say it's very important to understand what's going on there. So, of course, the popular story is, well, they're just a bunch of unskilled immigrants who want to go and live off the welfare state. That's the real story. But then you go and take a look at Indian Americans. So that is from, you know, Americans from India. And you'll see that they are now America's richest ethnicity. Uh They are socially probably the most conservative ethnicity by a lot of measures. And yet they still have a four to one Democratic to Republican ratio. So when you look at that, I think you really have to set aside the idea that it's some kind of objective self-interest that's motivating immigrants to be for the Democrats and go to a more psychological story. And I say the simplest one is that Democrats are nicer to immigrants than Republicans. Republicans make them feel unwelcome. Democrats are at least better on that score. And immigrants vote for the party where they that doesn't seem hostile to them. Yeah. Now, we can test this and we can say, well – were things different back when Republicans had a better attitude towards immigrants? And they did. All right. So in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan had many very pro-immigration statements, and he did sign that amnesty. And back in those days, immigrants uh, immigrants split, split very evenly between Democrats and Republicans back then. So it, it is not anything built into the DNA or the culture of immigrants that they vote for Democrats. It is rather, in my view, almost totally the fault of Republicans who've been hostile, although they're, they're, this does set in a chain reaction. Republicans get more hostile towards immigrants, so immigrants become more hostile towards Republicans, which makes Republicans more hostile to immigrants, and so right, on. Right, right. Right? Uh, now, you could say, well, in that case, it's whatever the cause was, it's hopeless. But that is, again, what America can't say. America can't <laughs> say, well, the people that currently don't vote for us will never vote for us, so we have no choice but to try to get rid of them. Uh, but we can go back and see there have been numerous other examples of big demographic shifts. So it used to be that Democrats or rather Catholics were solidly Democratic, and now they're not anymore. And what happened? Well, since this is a Christian libertarian podcast, you probably have some idea of key factors that tip the scales there. But really what happened is that you is that you know, there were Democrats uh, switched their policies in a way that a lot of Catholics found very offensive. And then there were entrepreneurial Republicans who said – don't tell me Catholics don't vote Republican. I say Catholics don't vote Republican yet. Uh, and they went and reached out and they changed minds and they got people on their side and they overcame a uh, over a century of hostility between Republicans and Catholics. And things have now totally changed. And this is what I say is the reasonable thing for people to do. And especially when you realize that it's so that it's very, that it's superficial. It's not based primarily upon issue views. It's based upon just bad blood, right? bad attitude. You know, on the whole voting question, I think this is one of the things that I often have to clarify with people when I'm discussing. It's like, well, hang on here. When we say open borders, we don't mean that everyone just can come over and get citizenship overnight. We're not saying, like, we're basically saying people can come here and work. People can come here and exchange and trade and do things that peaceful natives would do. That doesn't like we're not necessarily arguing that they should become citizens overnight. And like that would be like, I guess, one example of a keyhole solution. It's like, well, okay, fine. You know, immigrants can come over here, live, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to, quote unquote, open borders, the citizenship route. Yeah. Like it could just yeah, be open yeah, borders yeah, yeah, from being doesn't here. Mean, you know, open borders is not equal instant citizenship, right? So, so you know, reasonable people will be convinced. However, 
more stubborn people will just say, well, but they'll get a citizenship eventually and they probably have their political views are solidly set up and their kids, uh, they're, they're going to be like their parents too, I just assume, since I've never looked at any data actually, but I can just make up stuff. Right? And, <laughs> and I'll say, you know, like this is not, a, this is not a car- just a caricature. There are, there are so many issues uh, on you know, it's just, you know, the analysis of the public opinion of immigrants versus natives, where as far as I can tell, I'm the first person that ever looked. The data is right there, mm. but there are a whole lot of anti-immigrant people who will just use their intuition to decide what public opinion is, and then yeah. like, they won't do, go and do the basic data work. And I mean, again, this is frustrating, first of all, because I would rather be critiquing someone else's work than doing the original work, because if I do the original work and it looks good, then the anti-immigration people are just going to say, well, of course it looks good, because Brian did it. Right, right. But then he goes, oh, well, look... Yeah, but it, like your guys didn't even do it. So like, where, well, like, like I'm, I'm not, you know, like, like, you know, in a reasonable world, you would already have some numbers that I'd be critiquing them, right? Like I wouldn't have to be the originator of the right. evidence, but you know, you've left me no choice really. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've even mentioned, like, I think it's George Borjas who even his data isn't so negative as one would make it out to be. Like, yeah, so you actually, actually use other people's data and you're like, well, you, you're, you conclude that it's not going to be so bad. Yeah, so by the standards of a normal American, George Borjas has some extremely optimistic results about the effect of immigration on native wages. However, personally, he's anti, uh, he's very post-immigration, and so any little thing that he finds, he goes and publicizes. And then, since there's so few academics that want to, that, that that share his general negativity towards immigration, he gets a lot of attention. But if you really look at the numbers, they are very optimistic. And again, how would you know this? Well, I think, you know, the best way to do this would be to go to people who are critical of immigration and tell them, all right, so what do you think the effect of immigration on native wages is? And have them write it down and sign it so they can't weasel out of it. <laughs> and then bring and then say, okay, here's George Boros. He's the most respected critic of immigration in the economics profession. Let's show you what he finds. All right, now notice his result is way more optimistic than yours. So given that you have every reason to trust him because he is politically on your side, Seems like you should now be happy to say, oh, wow, things are clearly much better than I thought. And of course, this isn't likely to work or more likely people just refuse to be part of the experiment in the first place because they don't want to get cornered. But again, if you are intellectually honest, this is exactly what you should do. Right. So, you know, and this goes way beyond immigration. Because, you know, anytime you're making any kind of political forecast, right, it makes sense to write down what you think before you look at the facts so you can see how right you are. Mm. And you can all, and also this prevents you from painting everything as being the way that you want. So you know, like if you if you want to say, look, you know, terrorism is going to be terrible. Well, that's a vague word. But if in advance you write down how many how many deaths do you think are going to be caused by terrorism, then you can come back ten years later and you can see, oh wow, I was way too negative. Yeah. Whereas if all you do is predict horror and then every time something bad happens, you say, see, I'm right. You know, like that's. Bogus. <laughs> the technical term for that is bogus. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about data. Let's talk a little bit about that because there have been conversations I've had with people in a, again in the Christian Libertarian Facebook group where we'll we'll post you know a link to a study that you've cited or an article that you've written or someone else in in our camp so to speak. 
And what will happen is, you know, you'll get these articles about how mass immigration is causing problems in these particular locales. And so, of course, there's these like anecdotal newspaper article type, like here's where, here's what's the problem with immigration or whatever. But when there's something a little bit more substantial, there's data from like the Center for Immigration Studies from, uh, I think it's called FAIR. I can't remember the acronym's name. I did a brief look in your references in the back of your book, and I didn't see that you cited from them at all, or maybe you did, and I didn't, I didn't catch it because I didn't read every single line. But do you have, uh, do you have thoughts on the data that comes from organizations that are clearly in the anti-immigration camp? Yeah, so I actually do have probably five to ten citations from them. Again, because so like I'm focusing on actual academic research. So I'm not going to talk about anecdotes. And, you know, like, and again, like, I also don't, you'll notice I have a very few sites to positive pro-immigration anecdotes as well. I just don't put much stock in it in, in that mm-hmm. kind of it. Kind of, kind of so I'm trying to go to the highest quality evidence. So again, going to yeah, academic research and in particular focusing on people who don't seem like they have an ax to grind, who don't have an agenda, who are just doing your standard boring stuff. That's what I go to first. In terms of the quality that comes out of places like Center for Immigration Studies, yeah, I think it's generally very low quality work. Motive ends. You know, I think like I don't mean you know you often you don't even really have to actually read anything other than the study to see what's wrong with it because the misanthropy is just so out in the open. So you know, I, I have actually spoken not just uh, you know not not at the Center for Immigration Studies itself, but you know, I've debated their president about five times, but. Once I was actually invited to the Writers' Workshop, which is the umbrella anti, anti-immigration organization of the U.S. So Center for Immigration Studies is represented there, but really all of the anti-immigration groups that you've heard of in the U.S. are are present there. And I was brought in as the one pro-immigration person, right? And so, you know, like an interesting experience, and I was glad that I did it. One thing that was very striking is later in the day, there's a panel of people who had had family members murdered by illegal immigrants. Wow. Right? And... You know, I, w- I was glad I was not on the panel with them. I wouldn't have anything helpful to say, but uh, you know, I mean, of course, you know, that, but that's you know, like that's a pure appeal to emotion. Logically, you could just as well be at a Nazi organization and they have a panel of people who are murdered by Jews, and it's like, well, yeah, well, fine, all right. So there's some Jewish murderers, but that doesn't mean that anything you're saying is yeah. remotely is, is remotely okay, and. And yet, but that you know that that is in my mind the intellectual quality of so much of what comes out of places like CIS and Fair is going and rounding up the family members of people murdered by illegal immigrants. And on the one hand, it's very rhetorically effective, but intellectually, it is the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the low. Okay. So, have you been confronted like directly with individuals who, like you know, my relative was murdered by an immigrant or anything like that? I've never met such a person. Thing. Okay, so Thanks. this conference was like the closest thing to that. Yes, yes. So yeah, it was yeah. happening later in the day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I did my part, and then I, I I had another appointment. Yeah. What do you What do you think of the whole globalist agenda argument? Where you know, there's these, you know, it, it comes from both the left and the right. I've learned. Um, mm-hmm. I I always thought that it was like accused of like the left being like you know you can think of the the rich billionaires on the left who say oh well we need to have mass immigration because it'll collapse the capitalist system and then you know people on the left say oh well the you know the wealthy billionaires on the right really want mass immigration because they want cheap labor and so it has a little conspiracy theory feel to it but i i guess i can't completely write off the possibility what do you what do you think right so and i would say you know it's definitely true that elites are more cosmopolitan than the average person 
right? And I say that's yet another point in favor of elites. So I've you know, done a lot of work in public opinion, and I would say elite opinion is generally better and more libertarian than, than rank and file opinion, not in every case, obviously. Uh, but still, you know, if you think that elites aren't libertarian, just go and talk to regular people and you'll see how bad it gets. Right. <laughs> right. You know, in terms of, I mean, like, like really, really the, you know, so, you know, you probably know like the, the Nolan quiz, right? So, you know, uh, you know uh, when you go in and just survey the general public, they're much more likely to be in that populist quadrant, the one where they are against both economic and personal freedom. Right. And so like, like when you hear about elites being globalist, I think this is part of their of their libertarian leanings, although again, it's only relatively speaking. So the idea that elites are fa- actually favor open borders or anything like that is just crazy. It's just more of they're less hostile than that they mm-hmm. actually are supportive. Right. In terms of actual policy, what I would say is that it's possible to me that if we actually just decided policy by plebiscite, then we would have a lot more protectionism and a lot less immigration, right? So in that sense, the public, you know, like elites have managed to get more globalist policies than the public wants because they have greater influence in the system. And again, to my mind, that's all for the good, mm, right? So yeah. you know, I say, you know, like, you know, like, if, like the policies you would get if we actually listened to the man in the street would be like Peron's Argentina. You know, it would just be driving, a tr- driving your truck straight into a brick wall of disaster because the public is... You know, so hostile to business, so hostile to the rich, so hostile to personal freedom, right? And you know, elites for all their problems just aren't as bad. Yeah. Well, this is also probably a good time to mention your uh, myth of the rational voter, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that goes into that. Yes, I. So I am not a populist in any sense, and why not? Because I've I look at data, I see what the public actually thinks, right? And you know, it's easy to say, okay, well, the public's really against elites, and that's libertarian because elites are in charge. Until you ask, well, what would the masses? What will the masses do once they're in charge? You're like, oh yeah, they're going to do worse stuff, right? So, just the fact that someone is against the existing government doesn't mean they're anti-government. If we've learned anything from the history of revolution in the 20th century, it's that you know someone can correctly say the existing government is terrible. And yet it can be t- it's often totally reasonable to say, God, I hope that person never gets power because that person's really going to show us how bad government can be. I think that's why I'm a libertarian, because I, I, I there's a part of me that really wants to be in power. And then I realize, oh, that would be bad for everybody. <laughs> I think you I, my, I, my view is you'd be fine. I mean, you know, <laughs> so I, w- I wouldn't want to take, take the chance with just you personally, but <laughs> 20 libertarian podcasters, you know, so to so that just to balance out any occasional psycho. That I think would be a big improvement. It's pretty rare that we'd all be psychos. That's true. So, in in terms of just like practical things, um, how what would you start if if some if a politician came to you or the next president came to you and said, Brian, I really like your open borders policy, but this is this is a lot to unravel. Where would you where would you begin? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, there's a bunch of things that you can be done by executive order. And that's where you should always start because you don't need to get anyone else on board. So, you know, f- always fill the fill the refugee quota. That's one. Okay. That you can do very. You, know, you can do very easily. Is there an act? What do you know? What the refugee quota is? Yeah. So I think it's about two, it's about two hundred thousand. Okay. And where are we on the? Do you have any idea? What- well, so under Trump, we've gotten down really low. I think if I uh, I could be wrong, but my memory is only forty thousand out of two hundred thousand were let in. Okay. But there's not two hundred thousand desperate people desperately fleeing for their lives on Earth. That's crazy. Right. Right. So, right yeah. yeah so I, yes, I don't think you're going to impress many of our listeners by saying executive order, Brian. Yes. Well, 
uh, you know, executive order can be used for good or bad. Well, no, I agree, but so could <laughs> it. I mean, a dictator can be a good one too. Yeah. Well, you know, so this is not even dictatorship. This is within the lawful, democratically established powers of the president. So I don't know what, you know, there's no constitutionalist problem with any of this stuff, I would say. All right. I know at least some trouble understanding what it would be. And then also in terms of enforcement. So there is a long legal tradition saying that there's absolute prosecutorial discretion. The government never has to prosecute anything. And so I would say this is a great time for the president to stop prosecuting people for immigration, uh, for uh, crimes that are purely related to immigration, right? And furthermore, I don't, I don't think there's any executive problem with just releasing everyone that's currently uh, the currently inside of detention centers on their own recognizance, uh-huh. right? So these are all easy things to do. Now, in terms of practical measures for change, so, you know, like, so you're starting with easier with easier things. So you know, like more H one B visas. There's also special agricultural visas where uh, you push to expand those. And I think that would probably be easier just because it's so so obscure, hmm. right? Like more agricultural visas. So I think you can probably get in a lot of people under those. And there's a lot of foreign farm workers that would love to come and work on U.S. farms. And we could go and greatly increase the amount of food the U.S. produces. Great for not only U.S. farmers, great for the world, and great for course for the for the migrants. Now, once you've exhausted all of your legal expansions, what we got, then you're in the territory of actually changing fundamental law, right? Which I think would be great. So, you know, a lot, a lot of ways that you could push that. So, I mean, the simplest one is just to take the existing system and raise the quotas, right? And uh, and just lower, lower, lower the standards for what what has to happen for people to get in, right? And then, you know, more exotic things are ones where. You're letting people in if they go and pay an entry fee or letting people in if they pay higher taxes, that kind of thing. So just expanding work, uh, work-based work visas. And again, there's a lot of other ones that probably you can change by via regulation. It's like right now, for example, there's a big loophole for research professors, right? But not for their spouses. So I mean, right now, for example, anytime GMU Econ wants to hire foreigners, it's never an issue because there's a big loophole for research professors. But if that research professor is married, their their spouse can't work right now. So I think probably that would just be a regulatory change of saying that the spouse can work too and oh, okay. get, get things like that. Um, and then you know, like, like you know, something else that actually I think would not—I don't think this requires fundamental change—is just making it a lot easier to get tourist visas, and then and then frankly, not enforcing people overstaying their visas. <laughs> there's that, and there's just and there's just you know, gutting enforcement of the uh, rules against work. Uh, so, you know, like firing E-Verify, which, um, you know, most critics of E-Verify will talk about the problems with E-Verify when it doesn't work and when it misidentifies a native. I say the problem is when it does work. Okay. So up until the Reagan amnesty, actually, you know, so one of the main things that Reagan, Reagan handed over to anti-immigration people as part of the deal was sanctions against employers. So again, that's something where prosecutorial discretion, you don't have to enforce anything against employers if you don't want to. And right now, of course, there's a bunch of industries that traditionally have been exempt, like hospitality, restaurants, very rarely do they get raided. And it's just sort of understood, well, like you can't really expect them to hire, to not hire illegal immigrants. And I think it'd be great to go and expand the jobs where people felt legally safe to go and bend the law, right? And I know there's a lot of people who get very upset about that. For libertarians to get upset about people bending the law is just bizarre to me. It was like, you know, like so... Like, you know, like you've never spoken, you know, never smoked marijuana, but you know, you don't smoke marijuana until it's legal or we should crack down on people until it's legal. Right. Right. 
And you know, even at the level of speed limits, you know, like whenever whenever I, I hear someone saying like all laws should be enforced and like anyone who doesn't obey the law is a criminal, it's like so do you like always always follow the speed limit exactly? Yeah, right. Right. And people say, well, no, of course not that. And I say, well, speed limit actually is not that bad of a law. There's some pretty good reasons for speed limits. Right. <laughs> you, you, well, right. You're, you're speeding could easily kill some bunch of innocent people. So there's some, you know, like maybe you say, well, it's not that effective. Like it's not, it's not a crazy law by any means. It's right. Not, right. You know, like if you're just saying like a laws where there's just no possible justification, speed limits should not be on that list. <laughs> on the other hand, a law that says that someone in Haiti has to go and starve because it's illegal for him to come and get a job shining shoes in Miami. That to me is exactly at the top of the doing a service for another individual. Yeah, that's at the top of the list of a law yeah. where yeah. You know, like, you know, the enforcement should look the other way and people that are breaking the law should not feel guilty. And when someone gets arrested, we should think of them as a victim of a terrible system rather than a criminal. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't think the, um, you're, you know, just don't enforce unjust laws answer to a lot of those questions is, is that far off from a libertarian, you know, way of thinking about how to nullify bad laws. I mean, there's, yeah, there's that yeah. built in. So yeah, I mean, nullification is not just for juries. <laughs> <laughs> it's for, yeah, well, there's all kinds of, yeah, there's all kinds of ways to nullify unjust laws. Um, so Brian, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to answer some of the questions that uh, I've been hearing when <laughs> you're, you're helping me out. Cause I've, yeah, so you I'm know, surprised you didn't ask me about the Bible stories in the book. Well, I, I would guess that I would just assume that my listeners already know about those and their objections aren't Christian objections. That's my critique so, of their well, objections. I would assume that they, that they would know that, that uh, my book would have Bible stories. So That's I, true. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, so like, I'm, I, I'm not Christian myself, but I read those stories and or I'm not, not Jewish either. So one, one is Old Testament, one's New Testament. But I knew those stories very well. And when I was writing it, like, those are just great stories. They're so compelling. There's a reason why people yeah. have been telling these stories for over 2,000 years, and it's because they make a great point very well. So I do, I do have the story of Abraham bargaining with God over saving the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, like how many innocent people have to be there before you won't destroy them. And then I've got the story of the Good Samaritan. And when I put them in there, you know, you know, partly I was just trying to reach out to another audience, but partly I just said these are just awesome stories. Yeah, and I think that the way we illustrated them is is really is very compelling. I was comparing it actually uh, a couple months ago. I read the manga Bible. Oh yeah, this is the Bible done in Japanese anime, Japanese cartoon style, and I read that and like you know that's good, but I think we did our we we did the same <laughs> stories better. <laughs> Well, yeah, you definitely did a good job there. You know, there's there's a huge uh, pro-immigrant, pro-sojourner is kind of the more theological word uh, bias um, in the scripture. And, you know, yeah. it's very much based on the fact that Israelites, you know, they were told, hey, you were slaves in Egypt. I rescued you. You need to be good to the person who's the stranger. The alien is the old King James word mm -hmm. in your midst. And so I, I find it baffling for Christians who take a high view of scripture to look at that and say, oh, yeah, but it's different here. Um, so, you know, I've, I've honestly, I've just kind of ignored those. This is probably why I didn't bring it up with you. I'm like, you know what? All of their objections have nothing to do with the scriptural stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of sad too, because it seems like they would, they would go to the scripture to get their, uh, I don't want to be accusative here, but get their ethical framework for what is an unjust law. Oh, right. Right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. So at least you can get comfort. This isn't the first time that Christians have ignored the text. 
Oh, that's true. That's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian. Thanks for being on the uh, podcast with us. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.